And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? I am doing good. I got the car washed and dusted the inside, wiped it down. So, you know, it's nice and clean now. And I was finally able to put up the latest installment of the Gothic Retrospective series on our Patreon, this time looking at uh, the evolution of Gothic visuals from 1939's Wuthering Heights to 1940's Rebecca to 1943's Jane Eyre. Uh, How are you? I'm doing fine. Um, We've had several eventful weeks and there's still a lot of events in the future because that is how time works. <laughs> um, but hopefully things settle and uh, hopefully we have some like big good news to share in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, if we talk about things too soon, then we jinx it. Correct. But, you know, things are on a upward trend for us currently. Yay. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of exciting stuff to come. Yeah, but you're feeling good about things? Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Um, What are we watching today? Today, Sarah, we are watching Curse of the Faceless Man from 1958, directed by Edward L. Kahn. He directed last week's movie, right? This is like the second half of the uh, double feature? Yeah, that's correct. So after It, The Terror from Beyond Space, shot in 12 days in January of 1958, Uh, It was time for producer Robert E. Kent's team to produce the B picture to back it up. So once again, this was directed by Edward L. Kahn and written by Jerome Bixby. And basically the rest of the behind the scenes crew was entirely identical. Uh, Cinematographer Kenneth Peach, the editor, uh, everyone's the same crew. Would they like have a break in between filming the previous one or were they just like film right onwards? Uh, No, there was a break. This film was shot in seven days in March of 1958. Um, So there's like a month, two months off basically in between here. So probably a month for post and then a month for pre-production for this film and then into actual filming. Yeah. Okay. So Bixby's story for this movie is inspired by the original 1932 version of The Mummy. And is the story of a Roman gladiator buried alive in the destruction of Pompeii from the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 79 AD, um, who then comes back to life in modern times and hunts the reincarnation of the woman he loved. Hunts. Sure. (laughs) Um, For people who want more information about Mount Vesuvius and Pompeii, there's a really good puppet history from watcher entertainment on youtube episode that goes on into it uh so check that out but i feel like most people will know what mount vesuvius is even just by reputation sure yeah i mean basically there was a big volcano that erupted in 79 ad in italy and it buried the roman city of pompeii under like layers and layers of ash which meant that like when that city was like dug up uh Everything was really well preserved. Exactly. 
Um, so the the idea here is that the reincarnated gladiator is sort of like petrified in a layer of ash. So he's like this big walking ash monster. Okay. Um, so the monster suit was designed by veteran ape actor Charles Gamora. Okay. And the facial makeup is by Lane Britton. And the actual role is played by stuntman Bob Bryant. Lead actor Richard Anderson had a, not that Richard Anderson, had a (laughs) uh, sort of low opinion of this movie. He regarded it basically as like something he did while on the way to something else, like just sort of a stepping stone in his career. Okay. Um, But he did note that its tight shooting schedule helped him train for television because again, this was shot in seven days yeah uh born in 1926 anderson had begun his career in 1950 as an mgm contract player um roles of his throughout the 50s that are somewhat notable include uh he was the chief engineer in forbidden planet in 1956 and he was also the sycophantic prosecuting attorney in paths of glory in 1957 okay uh after this he sort of mostly went into television he became a regular on perry mason in 1965 he also appeared in just a variety of guest roles on television through the 60s 70s and 80s from 1961 to 1973 he was married to katherine thalberg the daughter of irving thalberg and norma shearer and um, his most notable role is probably as oscar goldman the boss of the title characters on the TV shows, The Six Million Dollar Man, and its spinoff, The Bionic Woman. Mm-hmm. We have the technology. Right, exactly. Supporting actor Luis Danton Van Ruten was born in Mexico City in 1906 and moved to the United States with his parents in 1914. He graduated from the University of Pennsylvania and worked as an architect. Uh, but during World War II, His facility with languages made him in demand as a military radio announcer because he could speak English, Spanish, German, Italian, and French. Wow. Talented Uh, guy. Right. So that, like, experience as a military radio announcer, like, I guess gave him, like, a bug for performance. um, Because he started doing a lot of, like, radio roles, and that led into, like, film roles. He appeared in Hollywood films in the 1940s, often playing characters with accents, uh, including numerous Nazi roles. Um, He also excelled as a voice actor. He played both the king and the Grand Duke in Disney's Cinderella. Okay. So, you know, you never knew before, both those guys who basically all their scenes are with each other are the same voice actor. Van Ruten was also the author of numerous like humor books in the 1960s. Um, the one I want to point out is Moder Goose Rhymes, a collection of French quote unquote poems that if you speak them aloud with an exaggerated strong French accent sound like English Mother Goose Rhymes. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, so let me let me read you one. This is Humpty Dumpty. Un petit d'un petit, c'est un a ho. Un petit d'un petit, ah, de gred te fall. And this supposed to be French? Yeah, uh, it would mean child of a child, astonished by the hall. Child of a child, ah, you lack degrees. Oh, but it sounds like Humpty Dumpty. I yes, see. Yes, yeah. I get it now. Yeah. 
I, I got confused because it sort of sounded German. Because mm, my accent is bad. Ah. Um, <laughs> so Curse of the Faceless Man was released on the bottom half of the double bill with It in August of 1958. Over the years, it has received both positive and negative reviews. Um, critics of the time noted that the monster had poignancy and that the film was well made, but that it struggled with sluggish pacing and poor performances. The cinematography of Kenneth Peach, who also shot It, won some praise, as did the film's musical score, which is by Gerald Freed. Oh, sorry. That's my, I feel like that's my response every time Gerald shows up, but uh, I like his stuff, so. Yeah. The film is available on DVD from MGM in their MGM Midnight Movies collection, and it is also available on Blu-ray from Kino Lorber. We will be watching it on YouTube, where it is on our Scream Scene playlist, as are any and all of the movies that we watch that are available on YouTube. So folks, if you would like to watch along, you can head over to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com, to find that playlist. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Curse of the Faceless Man from 1958, directed by Edward L. Kahn. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Curse of the Faceless Man from 1958, directed by Edward L. Kahn. Uh, ben, I think I know what the curse is. The movie's not good? Yeah, it's not good. It's really not good. Well, there are some things I admire about it. But yes, on the whole, it's not. It's a disappointment. Yes, well, especially after the a picture like mm. it from, from beyond the edge of space or whatever it the terror from beyond space yeah i came into this like not like my expectations were higher but i was like okay i've seen what they can really do yeah and then this was like as if they had just kind of coasted well the only real difference production wise between this and it is the budget much lower yep and the shooting schedule much shorter yeah. Like one was shot in a week and the other in two weeks. And one had like a, I want to say like $300,000 budget and the other one a $100,000 budget. So I think it really goes to show you what like time and money can do. Quality is right. what they can do. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's the old saying, right? Like you can either do it cheap, fast, or good, but you can't do all three of those things. Yeah. So if you're both cheap and fast, you cannot be good. Um, I think we can get through the plot synopsis fairly quickly. There's a lot of like pointless ins and outs in this movie, but for the most part, the broad strokes of this are very familiar. Uh, lots of characters as well. So I will try to keep people as straight as possible. So when we open, it's at a Pompeii archaeological dig site and uh this one digger 
discovers a box of treasure, a treasure chest, a little small one, and a body. Uh, And this is a body from Pompeii. Uh, In the chest were gold jewelry and a bronze medallion with an Etruscan curse written on it. And according to this curse, um, the body uh, that is nearby is the gladiator Quintilus Aurelius. And he put a curse on the family that was keeping him from the woman he loves. Now, during the transportation of Quintilius to the local... um, Pompeii Museum, based in Naples, Italy, um, he begins to be mobile, and he attacks and kills the driver. But his mobility seems to be short-lived, and he quickly reverts to a stone shape. Meanwhile, the museum director, named Dr. Carlo Fianello, uh, calls in Dr. Paul Malon to help study the body, Um, He also brings in a Dr. Emmanuel to study and translate the script on the medallion. Also involved here is Fianello's daughter, Maria, and his assistant, Dr. Enrico Ricci. Uh, Now, with the trucker's death, uh, the police are getting involved because they're like, well, we don't really know what caused the death here. And then eventually they do discover that it was murder and leading the... Um, investigation is Inspector Rinaldi. Now, after um, he gets a chance to look at the body, uh, Paul heads home to uh, the apartment of his girlfriend, Tina. Now, Tina is an artist, and she has been painting this kind of strange portrait of a stone man who looks strikingly like Quintilius. Um, and she kind of explains that, you know, I had weird dreams last night and woke up and just had this irresistible urge to paint this. And her dreams were that a stone man was discovered at Pompeii and was transported and that the truck driver was killed and that the stone man was taken to the museum. And Paul's like, well, that all literally did happen. So let's take you to the museum so you can talk to the director and see what's going on. Now, seeing Quintilius, the stone man, in person, Tina becomes very, like, focused and entranced with, like, this urge to draw him to the point where she... Like one of her French girls. (laughs) To the point where she sneaks into the museum at night to do so. Uh, And as she is drawing, Quintilius moves and gets up. She screams and draws in a guard, and uh, Quintilius kills that guard. And after Tina faints, Quintilis puts a brooch from his, like, little chest onto Tina and then quickly, like, becomes immobile again. He seems to work on Toy Story rules. (laughs) Just don't look at him. When the adults come into the room, he goes all, you know, immobile. Now, Maria, it's established, is um, a medical doctor. And so she takes Tina home because Tina is in, like, shock and almost comatose. (laughs) Meanwhile, back at the museum, Maria, Paul, and Dr. Fianello test the mobility of Quintilis because at this point, like, no one can confirm that he has been moving. And they use the brooch that he pinned on Tina to, like, see, you know, what makes him move and so they put the brooch on the floor near him Quintilius gets up picks up the brooch and then (laughs) 
rampages through, well, rampage implies speed, breaks through the museum door and goes out and basically heads towards Tina's apartment. Um, now, they don't really ever explain this, but basically, if you know what blind sense is in D&D, it's kind of like how a worm knows where like food is and stuff, even though they are blind. That that seems to be the explanation here. Yeah, I, I'm going to talk about this after the plot summary, but this movie stops a bunch to try and explain, explain uh, Quintilis's like various attributes and features. And it's really unnecessary because they're all stuff that we've seen mummies do in mummy movies without like batting an eye. So Quintilius gets to Tina's apartment and, you know, corners her and then falls immobile just as he is about to threaten her. So it comes down to these scientists, to these doctors, needing to investigate why and how Quintilius is mobile, because it never seems to be consistent. Um, and they theorize that, well, you know, Quintilius was found in the ruins of the Temple of Isis, you know, the Egyptian god, here in Pompeii. And uh, they had this, like, unique embalming fluid, and that must have just, like, completely steeped in his body as, like, the heat from the volcano percolated for a thousand years. And also maybe radiation from the Earth? But now that's why he's still sort of alive, sort of dead. And um, the curse is why he becomes mobile, because he is looking for the woman that he loves. Speaking of the woman that he loves, Dr. Emanuel, who is the person who translated the curse, it's never quite clear what his subject of study is, because he then takes Tina and does regression hypnotherapy Bridie Murphy style to discover that she is the reincarnation of Quintilius's long lost love. What a twist. Would never have seen this coming. In this trance, Tina makes her way back to the museum and ends up cutting the ropes that are tying Quintilius up um, in his stone shape because they don't know what to do to restrain him, so they tie him up in belts basically. She frees him, he wakes up, and basically takes her down to the Bay of Naples. So cops are chasing them and following them. Our intrepid heroes are following them in a car, going like, oh man, like, why is he taking her to the, to the bay? And meanwhile, throughout this entire movie, we've had narration. And thanks to the narrator, it is explicitly explained how for both Quintilius and Tina as um, the long-lost Roman person are reliving the events of Vesuvius. And Quintilius is trying to save Tina by heading to the water to escape the volcano. He, he goes into the water and immediately begins to dissolve. And Tina, you know, she's unconscious, so there's that threat of drowning. But after Quintilius dissolves in the water... Paul races down, gets Tina. She's like, why are we at the beach? What's been going on? And he's like, oh, you don't remember anything? That's for the best. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you anything. The end. So there's a lot of weaknesses to this movie. Before we start just tearing into this flick, um, let's talk about some things we liked about it. Well, 
I thought that the effect for Quintilius dissolving into the ocean was pretty neat. Yeah. Um, he like as he's walking in, the part that's just above water is looking like smoky or dusty. So it's a really neat effect. Yeah, it really looks like he's dissolving in the water. It's it's pretty nicely done. Um, I think that the monster suit slash makeup for him as being this like petrified man looks pretty cool. Um, ultimately, it just makes him into like a different sort mummy. of mummy. But um, but I think it, it looks good. I think it's it's a neat look. It's probably the best thing the movie has going for it is like the unique appearance of this guy. And I do like that when he slowly begins to move, it's kind of one limb at a time as if he has truly been petrified. Yeah. And often when he's walking, his hands remain at that same position that he was found in in the ash. Yeah, I mean, it's a position with his hands held out forward, so it gives him that, like, traditional movie monster gait. Um, but yeah, it's it's all right. The other thing I really liked about this movie overall is that it really tries to make an effort to appear like it's set in Italy. Yeah. Um, it is clearly shot in California, in Hollywood. The, the uh, observatory takes the place for the Pompeii Museum. Yeah, Griffith Observatory. Um, but... The actors who aren't playing Paul and Tina are actually trying to do Italian accents. Um, our language expert in the cast actually has some Italian dialogue at one point. Um, Italian language is on like all the signages and text that we see when they try to show like the streets of, um, I guess, Naples. They've clearly tried to find a backlot with little like small cobblestone streets and like that has a European flavor to it um the cars that everyone is driving are like little wee european cars and like the truck is like a little small volkswagen truck like i like that i like that you know it's not a world where it's like hello i am dr mario lucrezio from <laughs> italy and it's like <laughs> i mean paul does speak like that but it's also made like kind of clear American. that he's American, yeah. so it works. Yeah, he and Tina are clearly supposed to be American. This is sort of a double-edged sword. I appreciate the intelligence that the script wants to have. You can tell that someone smart and well-read wrote the script, but that intelligence ultimately becomes kind of an albatross around the film. It feels like it is trying to justify its story to the audience multiple times and in different ways by being like, oh, well, maybe it's radioactivity or maybe it's the chemicals from the embalming fluid or maybe we need to resort to Egyptian alchemy to fully understand. Yeah, it's it's maybe it's the curse they're trying to explain what's going on all the time and i think this is where jerome bixby's background in science fiction isn't helping him um because like the beauty of the supernatural is that it requires no explanation so if you go back to like the chorus movies it's like how does the creature see how does it walk what's making it ambulatory how does it know where to go how does it hone in on you know the person who's its victim it's magic, stupid. Like it's a, <laughs> it's an ancient Etruscan curse. That's all you need to say. Yeah. Um, 
all the attempts at these rational scientific explanations are laughable. They slow down the movie. No one in the audience cares. And they are, as you say, like contradictory and unnecessary. At one point, they try to say like maybe the radiation from an x-ray scan they took reinvigorated the creature. But we see that Quintilius has been moving the entire time. The problem is, is that they have these different questions, like how can he see? How can he walk? Why does he stop walking at certain points? How can he find Tina? But they give like separate answers for each one that don't relate to one another. The one thing they never really, in my opinion, explain well is the like, why does he stop moving at random points? The explanation they try to give is this radioactivity one that you just mentioned, right? That like, oh, there was radioactivity in the earth. So he was like suffused with that. And then he like ran out like a battery going dead. But then when we gave him the x-rays that like repowered him. But like we never actually see him getting x-rayed. That's not like a crucial moment in the movie. It's like an offhand thing that gets mentioned several scenes after we've seen him moving around the whole film where someone's like, oh, I want to show Paul these x-rays we took. Like that's as if you're trying to explain like what made Frankenstein's monster ambulatory, but your movie doesn't have the lightning storm scene in it. It's like it also has the appearance of being different drafts mm. cobbled together. Possibly. Um, Especially by the way that characters just completely disappear until they're needed for a scene. Because yeah. Maria and especially the assistant, whose name I can't even remember. Dr. Ricci. Ricci, yes. Um, they just completely disappear after they're not needed to be like, oh no, Tina is in danger slash I'm jealous. Mm. Yeah, and then they show up kind of at the end, and yeah. like Maria has this moment where she's like, I was in love with Ricci all along. And it's like, Were you? I don't, okay, sure, whatever you say, babe. Like, <laughs> the. I mean, she's allowed to have her own internal life, Ben. <laughs> sure. <laughs> she's um, not the main character. <laughs> so, like, the other thing about all these explanations is they're all mutually exclusive. Like, oh, yeah, the embalming fluid thing, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Whereas, like, if you just said it's an Etruscan curse, that handles all of it. It's magic. How does he know where to go? Because magic, it's a curse. Um, the other thing that's really frustrating here that's a huge weakness is not only are we over-explaining everything, but the movie has, like, a complete lack of faith in its audience to understand the story. Despite the fact that by 1958, this is a stock plot. Yeah, so the narration that goes on, you, while we were watching it, kind of described it as radio play narration, and that's exactly the style, Um, like saying, like, Paul races to Tina's apartment, and we see him arrive, for example. Yeah. And it's completely unnecessary. It makes me wonder, like, was this a radio play before they suddenly needed to adapt it to screen? Because they just needed something. It's so strange. And it also makes it feel like it's like, yes, they are not confident in the audience, but it also gives the feeling that they aren't confident in their own story. Right. The narration basically alternates between either explaining what we are seeing on screen, um, like that stuff, like Paul races across town, or like recapping 
the story thus far, which is why it felt so radio playish to me because it's like telling us stuff that we can see. Um, and also like, as if we just came back from a commercial break and needed to be reminded of where we are in the story. Yeah. And part of why it seems so strange is because it's not doing anything to fill time. No. Right. Because to fill time, you cut to a different scene. You actually sit and watch them go across town. But the way that the narration is used is almost to bridge those things. Yes. Not to take up time. Which gives it like a very comic book narration or like Batman 66 kind of narration. Yeah. Like um, it's also very purple in its prose, which makes it like a little arduous to listen to. Ben, this is in black and white. If you don't know what purple prose is, <laughs> it's a synonym for overwritten. Yeah, it's just like it's not doing anything for us. And not only is the narration kind of treating us like idiots, but all the characters come across as idiots. Because even if they have this like process of like, okay, we learn this and then we learn this and then we learn this. In the same way that the explanation of the creature's abilities are mutually exclusive, their discoveries don't really build off each other. And it makes the characters look really stupid because it takes them the entire runtime of the movie to figure out the premise of the movie, which that is there's that, a man inside. Well, okay. There's that. <laughs> I was talking about the fact that she's the reincarnation of his lost love and he's out to get her. Like, it's like, okay guys, here are the facts that you know. This is the body of some Roman gladiator dude. That he Roman... literally has a letter that says I was in love with someone and they kept me from her. Yeah. And I, put and a I curse them right. for doing so. Right. He has a little letter that explains his entire deal. And they know that he keeps going after Tina before you even get to like, Oh, she looks like the bust of this chick from this other museum stuff. It's like, people are like, why, why is the creature going after the girl? And it's like, I don't know. Cause he's horny. Like what, what, what have you not seen a monster movie before? Like, what do you think is going on? Yeah. Um, do you think he's going to eat her? Like what? And they, they know, they know it's a body. They keep referring to it as a body. And one of the reasons why they can't believe that it's walking around is because it's a dead body from Vesuvius from 2000 years ago. And yeah, it's like covered in this like hard crust stone. Yeah. That's, that's the ash that's petrified around it. But like they, they know it's a body of a man, but at one point Dr. Um, Maniello is like, Paul, I took x-rays and you'll never believe what's inside the crust. It's like, a human being with like flesh and organs and a skeleton. And he's like, a man. And it's like, what did you think it fucking was? Did you think it was just fucking an empty shell? Like, what did you think was in there? What? what? Um, Paul, who's the lead character is the worst of everyone in terms of how much of an idiot he is. This is what I mean by they don't build on their yeah. past discoveries. Paul has sort of a default state of not believing things, right? He's the guy who's like, well, bodies don't walk around. Oh, well, curses aren't real. Oh, well, reincarnation isn't possible, right? He's that guy. And that is fine. Those are difficult things to believe in. But I feel like, like the thing is, is that he gets each one proven to him in turn, right? It's like, oh, that body does move around. Cool, I've accepted that. But reincarnation isn't real. Wouldn't some of these things get easier to believe in yeah as you go at a certain point you clue in that like 
this is a messed up world, guy. Yeah, this is what's happening. It doesn't help that he has an uncanny, in my opinion, resemblance to David Manners. <laughs> but I mean, that's just like a plain face in a suit. So, um, but yeah, the acting in this movie let, let me okay let me back up i was going to say the acting in this movie is bad mm-hmm. um paul and tina are particularly bad yes everyone else is like neutral yeah they're not doing anything special but like they're not ruining the movie by being there but tina tina's being asked to do things that are clearly beyond the actress's skills Um, The actress's name is Elaine Edwards. She was really not in anything other than this, other than a couple episodes of TV, and she doesn't have much of a CV, so we kind of know what happened to her. And she just can't pull off what the movie's asking from her. Richard Anderson, playing Paul, it's almost like his disgust for the material is coming through way too strongly, Um, and he just... All of his vocal deliveries just make him sound like an asshole, yeah um but the writing also doesn't serve these characters well because they just say things and do things that are there to keep scenes moving yeah like you said there's no forward momentum Mm -hmm. um but it's not even like we're just spinning our wheels like no we what we are doing in fact is we are going through the motions yeah like switching the standard mummy into being into being an Etruscan gladiator from Pompeii is like a cool variation. And it's very clear that Jerome Bixby like did his research on like Pompeii and Rome and gladiators and noble families and Etruscans and Egyptians and all of this stuff. And he wants you to know that he did his research, but in terms of the actual plot, not enough is done with the plot to make it feel new. So the characters are just doing what you know is going to happen next, right? Like it's all very predictable. It's all very paint by numbers, all very going through the motions. One of the most frustrating moments in the movie to me was um, Paul and Tina and I think the police inspector are having a conversation. And Tina goes from believing she is having telepathic dreams or maybe not believing to whatever the opposite based on who's talking to her because her character just seems to be set to disagree with whatever man is talking to her. So like Paul is like reincarnation's impossible, Tina. There's no way that that could be true. And she's like, you're not listening to me, Paul. I'm definitely telepathic. And then the inspector comes in and he's like, well, if you have a connection to this monster, then like, Maybe we can exploit that. And she's like, no, there's no possible way I could be connected to this monster in any way. It's all just in my head. And it's like, well, which is it, Tina? It's very frustrating to watch. Yeah. I do want to shout out Gerald Freed. Mm. He is doing his utmost to try to make parts of this movie exciting mm-hmm. by just like having those horns blare in your face. It's it's a little much, Gerald. You you don't need to try so hard sometimes. Yeah, well, I mean... I mean, I respect the hustle, but it's okay. <laughs> it's just that, like, he knows that certain movies are supposed to be exciting. Like, the monster walking with Tina into the ocean 
is supposed to be the climax of the movie, but Edward L. Kahn is not shooting it or editing it in an exciting way. He just has everything in like a medium master and we're just watching the creatures slowly shuffle away from us. And so like Gerald Fried knows it has to be exciting. So he's got the score going like, like just going and going and going at full blast as we're watching just like this monster slowly dissolve. Yeah. He gives it a good college try. Yeah. But clearly a disconnect went on. Yeah, that's why I was also saying, like, it kind of feels like the crew here, like everyone behind the camera are just kind of coasting. I mean, you do bring up a good point at the top of the discussion about the shorter shoot time, the, sh- the smaller budget. Um, and there's nothing here that's incompetent. No. And there's no mistakes here. Like, they're doing the job. Yeah. But you don't feel the level of excitement or I almost want to say passion for the creative craft that you saw in it's terror from space it the terror from beyond space I'll get it one of these days so like that's the real problem isn't it I mean this is fine and there's clearly like some scenes like when he chases her into the basement of her building where they realized like oh maybe we should make things dark and spooky right um but it's the fact that we just saw these exact same people make a much better movie that makes all of the flaws of this one really come into like sharp relief absolutely well do you want to move on to ranking yeah let's do it i just sort of have a spot picked out what about you I also just have sort of a spot. Okay. Who wants to go first? I'll go first. Okie dokie. So I was like, okay, Ben first said that this was kind of like the mummy. Uh, They were inspired by Karloff's mummy. So let's look at where that's ranked. That's ranked at number 146 on the list. Um, And as tepid as the mummy is, it's like you can tell people are trying, right? Yeah, they wanted to make a good movie. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure these guys wanted to make a good movie, but they also just wanted to make the movie. So I was like, okay, I know it's going below there. (laughs) Making my way down, I stopped around 203 Sex Maniac. Okay, okay. And the reason I went all, all the way down here, the reason I stopped at this particular movie is a lot of the movies down here are wild. Hmm, sure. But incompetent. And I think that's a great way to describe Sex Maniac. It's it's incompetent. Sorry, guys. So I was like, okay, so that's a range of like 60 spots. Let's try to figure out a, a more narrow range. And as I started looking, I came to a specific spot. My eyes settled on The Mummy's Ghost at 182. Uh, now, that's the one where we have a reincarnation. It's the college girl. Uh, and that's also with John Carradine as the priest of Karnak. Mm-hmm. Um, and that one's really bad. It's just, again, going through the motions and everything. And at least Curse of the Faceless Man is trying to, like, mix things up with this Pompeii thing, with, like, a mix of, like, curse radiation alchemy out of nowhere like they're trying to like mix up the formula whereas the mummy's ghost might as well have been on autopilot so 
my spot, given that, was to slot this in above the Mummy's Curse. Right above that is Voodoo Island, which had a very interesting thing with uh, those people. Is that the one where like the people pop into existence and then pop out? What What is Voodoo That's Island? That's the one where Karloff leads an expedition and the plants eat you, and it turns out that like it's the like tribe of people who use voodoo and they're led by a German guy. He's not supposed to be German, but he's definitely German. Yeah. So I definitely got Voodoo Island mixed up with something else. Uh, so just quickly thinking on my feet here, I'm going to readjust and say um, little tiny range here. Uh, just above Voodoo Island is the Neanderthal Man, which is a terrible, terrible movie. But above that is Plan 9 from Outer Space, which uh, you can feel the passion for. So I would suggest that we slot this in below Plan 9 from Outer Space, but above the Neanderthal Man at 180, um, but definitely above the Mummy's Ghost. But what were you thinking? <laughs> so I was thinking lower. Okay, fascinating. Um, I basically decided that this was worse than all the Mummy movies because while the Mummy movies are very repetitive, Chorus has more going on than Quintilis does. There's a consistency. Chorus, and also like those movies were just like, hey, it's Tana Leaves and left it at that. <laughs> um, and, you know... The Mummy's Hand, which ranks the lowest, mostly ranks as low as it does because it's more of an adventure movie. But, you know, at least there was an adventure. This film is competent and also really bland mm -hmm. going through the motions. I admire that Bixby wanted to try to do something different, but he's let down by the fact that the script needs to over explain everything and all of these characters are just walking cardboard, even if they are trying to be authentically Italian walking cardboard. Now you were at one point looking down at two Oh three. Yeah. I was looking a little lower than that. Okay. Um, there's a sort of point in the list where the movies go from like bad to incompetent. And for me, that point is between the unearthly and Mesa of Lost Women. Sure. Mesa of Lost Women is very bad, and this is a better movie than that. The unearthly is probably better made and might have more exciting performances, but is also like a movie I took great offense to. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I like this better than that. Above that, we have things like The Man with the Pale Face which doesn't make sense and scared to death, which doesn't make sense either, but is very fun. Um, this movie, I didn't find fun. I found like I was just tapping my feet waiting for it to end. Yeah. It was very tedious. And so, you know, if you, if you put it to me, like what would you rather watch again, this or scared to death? I'd rather watch scared to death and the man with the pale face. That's the one with the leprosy, right? Yes. Not the, surreal one the surreal one is the man without a face okay cool yeah um and this is the curse of the faceless man yeah um so uh <laughs> i like that better than this as well um the leprosy the mexican leprosy movie so i was looking at putting this at 209 uh, above the unearthly and below mystery of the pale face can you remind me what the unearthly is about unearthly is john carradine 
runs a mental health like institution, oh, yeah. like and a then, home. Like, the guy uh, who he, John a... Carradine thinks is like a serial killer is actually a policeman. Yes. And yeah. Carradine's doing like weird um, biological experiments on the patients. Yeah. To um, give himself eternal life or some shit. Yeah, it's very... Glands. It's very dumb. Um, yeah, I'm actually quite happy with this spot. Okay. Uh, you don't want to try to go a little higher because you were looking higher? No. Okay. So then <laughs> entering the list at number 209 is The Curse of the Faceless Man from 1958, directed by Edward L. Kahn. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the many episodes that we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at underscore screamscene on Twitter. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to the show using our RSS feed, and you can help the show out by leaving a rating or review on the podcasting app of your choice. Tell a friend about the show around the water cooler, if offices still have those, on social media, if uh, you don't have an office, um, or just, you know, the next time someone asks you, hey, what's a good podcast? Tell them, Scream Scene. If you'd like to show your financial support for what we do here, you can head over to patreon.com slash podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the $5 and $10 levels get access to regular bonus content. $10 patrons get those Gothic Retrospective articles that Sarah mentioned at the top of the show. So that's patreon.com slash Scream Scene Podcast. So Ben, what are we watching next week? Next week, Sarah, we are headed off to Mexico for the sequel to El Vampiro. It's El Etad del Vampiro, The Coffin of the Vampire. Okay. And it's a direct sequel? Indeed. Interesting, because didn't the vampire die? That usually is what happens, yes. Yeah, well, I guess they're leaning into that universal thing. Right. All right, well, we will see you then, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye. Bye.